I, I do enjoy uh, getting up here to speak every once in a while. Um, I, I learn a lot. Um, you know, today we're looking at, uh, we're, we're starting the series, Come and See. And uh, I, I was just thinking uh, earlier this morning, if you'll just take a moment before you get started and think to yourself, what are you invited to come and see in your life? And not, not, by, not necessarily by, by Jesus, but by anything in your life, what do you feel tugging at your heart? Come and see. I, uh, the first thing that jumped in my mind when I heard come and see was uh, come and see top 10 childhood stars and where they are today. Number six will surprise you. watching TV, come and see. Best discounts ever. Why would a car dealer do this? There's a lot of things we're invited to come and see in our life. In fact, I'm flying out to Las Vegas tomorrow, a healthcare conference, and uh, it's the largest healthcare conference in the world. Not in the world. In the, you know, I don't know. It's big. But there's only three places they can have it in the United States, and Las Vegas is one of those. I was out there a couple of years ago, and the first time I went to Las Vegas, I was blown away by the come and see. And if you've ever been, or even if you've just ever seen a picture, it is everything that you would think. Come and see, lights flashing, come in here, come do this, come gamble. And it's all self, right? And it's interesting because there are so many things. Las Vegas is one of those places where it's right in your face, and there's bright lights, and it's the city that never sleeps. Well, one of the cities that never sleep. But... Um, you know, we see that in our day-to-day lives, too. There's lots of things tugging at our hearts to come and see. And so my, my ask to you today is, what does it mean and how is it different when Jesus says, come and see? And so that's what I'd like for you to, uh, for you to remember today. The phrase focuses us, come and see, over the next few weeks leading to Resurrection Sunday, and we're invited to see these specific testimonies from Luke of Jesus. So it is a come and see uh, Jesus, but it changes us. We will look at Jesus in his father's house, Jesus in his work, his followers, and Jesus and his need. One of the things I love about these two words is the, or three words, Come and see was the, uh, the first words ever spoken by Jesus to his disciples in the book of John. And so um, there were two people, two of John the Baptist's disciples uh, standing with him. And they say that, and, and John says that Jesus walked by. And as Jesus walks by, John the Baptist, just three guys, except one of them's crazy and lives in the wilderness. He's the prophet. Jesus, uh, John the Baptist looks, says, look, there is the Lamb of God. And so it, all we hear is that the two disciples that were with John left and followed Jesus. And that sounds great, right? They followed him. But they followed him, and they didn't tell him they were following him. It was that creepy kind of, you know, Jesus is walking, and then two guys just start following him. And as Jesus walks, he, said, or it, as Jesus walks, he turns around and he says, what do you want? I get these, the picture of these two creepy guys kind of following Jesus. Maybe they weren't creepy. Maybe they were nice guys. I don't know. But they're following Jesus, and Jesus turns around and says, what do you want? And their response could have been, um, John says you're the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, and I want to follow you. 
Instead, they didn't feel comfortable saying that, so Jesus said, what do you want? They said, uh, teacher, where are you staying? And Jesus, being who he is, rather than telling them where he's staying, come by and see me later, he just looks at them and he says, come and see. And so he discerns their heart. He perceives what they actually want. And, and they stayed with him the entire evening, we see. After one evening with Jesus, one of those two guys, Andrew, goes to his brother, we know as Peter, and says, we found the Messiah, or we found the Christ. They didn't know what they wanted. They thought he was the Christ. Jesus invited them to come see, and one evening he had changed them. So our series, Come and See, is much more than an invitation to look at the testimonies of Luke about a man called Jesus. It's an invitation to come and see the Messiah. The deliverer God promised to the Jewish nation over hundreds of years who came as the Savior of the world. Let's pray. Father God, you are good, and you invite us to come and see in a world that, whether we know it or not, is pulling us in all these different directions to come and see what the world has. And Lord, um, many times in my heart, I am chasing after things. I, I'm pulled away by by lies by other things. Come and see this. Come and see this. Try this. But Lord, it is, it is you who wants us to come and see Jesus because Jesus will change. And I pray that today as we talk about the Father's house that you will open our hearts, open our ears, and see what it means to see Jesus in the Father's house. In Jesus' name, amen. Today we're looking at Jesus in his Father's house. And as a, as a thought, um, I asked my boys, I have seven... Uh, Right? Okay. Seven, five, three, and uh, not quite one, about nine months. So I have four boys, and we were sitting around the, the breakfast table yesterday, and I asked them, uh, okay, so we're talking about Jesus and his father's house. That tells us something about Jesus and his father. So I said, boys, what does this house tell you about me? And of course, they looked at me very quizzically, and the two that are old enough to answer started answering. I asked them the same question again this morning. Um, I think the first answer was, Dad, we know that you like it when we keep the house clean. So, yes, I'm glad that's the first thing you came up with. But yes, that's true. I said, what else? They said, we know that you like lots of kids. I said, why? Because I have a lot of brothers, said one of them. What, what, what does it tell you about this house where we are? What does your father's house, Josh, tell you? He looked around, he said, that we like the woods. I said, why? Well, because we're in the woods, and we do. We live on the side of a mountain. What else? And his brother pipes up and says, we like two cars. Why? Well, we have two cars. So I figured out they're just looking out the window, and they're starting to name things that they see. So it kind of trailed off from there. I asked him again, and I finally got an answer that, that made me feel great, um, right, because that's important. I asked him again on the way to church this morning, what, what does your father's house tell you about your father? And one of them finally piped up and said that you love us. And I said, oh, that's great. Why is that? Well, because we see you love us in the house. But I thought it was interesting, and, and I didn't expect to get anything, any amazing answers from them, right? But I thought it was interesting that as we talked, they started talking. They weren't talking about the house itself. There are certain things about our house that are structured in certain ways intentionally, but what, what they kept talking about was me. And they had a really hard time separating who I was from what the house was. And that, I think, is okay. Um, because what they went to was, who are you? Not, what does this house tell me about you, but who are you and who do I know you to be? 
And so one of the things as we look at Jesus and his father's house, we're going to be talking about what does this say about Jesus and what does this say about his father? So let's look at this picture. We're, if you have your Bibles, we're in Luke 2. And uh, many of you have heard this before, either on the tail end of uh, the Christmas story or, or whatever it might be. Luke 2, 41. Every year, Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem for the Passover festival. When Jesus was 12 years old, they attended the festival as usual. After the celebration was over, they started home to Nazareth, but Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't miss him at first because they assumed he was among the other travelers. But when he didn't show up that evening, they started looking for him among their relatives and friends. When they couldn't find him, they went back to Jerusalem to search for him there. Three days later, they finally discovered him in the temple, sitting among the religious teachers, listening to them and asking questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. His parents didn't know what to think. Son, his mother said to him, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been frantic, searching for you everywhere. But why did you need to search, he asked. Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? But they didn't understand what he meant. Then he returned to Nazareth, and with them he was, and was obedient to them. And his mother stored all these things in her heart. Jesus grew in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and all the people. This piece of scripture seems very straightforward. Many times we, uh, we look at this as an example of how interesting it must have been to raise Jesus as a child. In fact, that's really all I thought about it. Okay, great. We've got this story of Jesus as a child. He just threw that in there to tell us that he wasn't a normal child. He was an amazing child because he's the son of God. And that's true. But at the beginning of the book, Luke says in his introduction that he has invested everything from the beginning, very, that he has carefully investigated everything from the beginning. So there must be a very good reason this scenario is mentioned. The phrase, Mary treasured these things in her heart, or she stored all these things in her heart, gives us the indication that, and, and there are some other things in the book as well, that Luke specifically talked to Mary as a part of his investigation, because he talks about how Mary felt about certain situations. Why is this important? Well, if I was Mary, uh, my first inclination, if I raised the Son of God, would not to put the one example out there of when I lost him for three days. So is it just an example of Jesus as a child, or maybe something more? Let's talk a little bit about some background here. Deuteronomy 16 tells us, um, as, they're talking, as, as God is talking about the three festivals of celebration throughout the year, that every man was to go up to the place God appointed, in this case, Jerusalem. Leviticus indicates that the Feast of Unleavened Bread was seven days, with the first day being Passover. After dusk, a Passover meal, Passover cedar, would be observed, which is a ritualistic meal involving the retelling of the liberation of the Jewish nation by God from slavery in Egypt. The first and the seventh day of this seven-day feast was a, a day for holy assembly where work is prohibited. And those two days are still observed as holidays in modern-day Israel. The journey from Nazareth to Jerusalem was approximately a five-day walk. And after Mary and Joseph left after Passover, they got about a day into it before they realized Jesus was not with their group. Another day's journey back and another day's journey searching, and they found him in the temple. A total of three days. Three days. The 12-year-old was gone. For me, that was a very long time. When I was 12, I would not have been okay. Thanks to our friends at 20th Century Fox, we all know what happens when you leave a kid alone for a few days. All kinds of shenanigans. But this isn't the picture that we have here. 
this is what I would be if I was left alone for three days at 12. Mary and Joseph are searching frantically for him. And when they find him, he's sitting in the temple. And, and honestly, maybe that was the last place they looked. It's the last place um, you would look for a 12-year-old who's lost in the city of Jerusalem. But there are a few points I want to pull out of this text, a few key observations that lead us just a bit deeper than a neat story about Jesus when he was a kid. First, I want you to notice something. If you've heard this story told, and in fact, Joshua told it to me this way, you may have heard about this amazing child that is teaching everybody in the temple. And that's actually not what we see here. We see that people are astounded by his understanding, but we see Jesus is actually learning. But wasn't he God? Didn't he know everything already? One of our core beliefs, and and we see this, this is the second time we see this in Luke. One of our core beliefs about Jesus was that he was fully God and fully man. And we see both an indication of his deity and his humanity in this. We see his wise understanding and answers to hard questions during discussion of the scripture in the temple. In fact, his answer that I am in my father's house clearly indicates his deity. But we also see that he listened to the teachings, and then at the end it says, and he grew in wisdom. Not he had it all already, but he grew in wisdom. Let's talk about those two things. Paul speaks of the deity in Christ in this way in his letter to the Colossians. Colossians 1, 15 through 17. Christ is the visible image of the invisible God. He existed before anything was created and is supreme over all creation. For through him, God created everything in the heavenly realms and on earth. He made the things we can't see, we can see, and the things we can't see, thrones, kingdoms, rulers, and authorities in the unseen world. Everything was created through him and for him. He existed before anything else, and he holds all creation together. Jesus is clearly God. But in the temple as a boy, we see him learning. While he was fully God, and through him all things are made, he was created fully human as well. As fully human, he learned. Jesus grew in wisdom. Sometimes when we hear this passage, we go back to Jesus knew it all. He was teaching. But being fully God from the beginning of time, he had a unique ability to work the wisdom of God into his fully human mind. So while he had amazing understanding, he still had a human mind. So he learned just as we learned, being fully human. Fully God, fully human. I've said that about six times. So what? Let's read Hebrews 2, 14 through 15. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die, and only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Only in this way could he set free all who have lived their lives as slaves to fear of dying. It is important that Jesus was fully human because that is why we are free. Because he was fully human, because he died for our sins, we have the promise of eternal life. This is why it's important. But there's another piece to this as well. Not only is it fundamental to our salvation, but it tells us what to do here and now. If we look further, there is great encouragement from him being fully human. Verse 16, we also know that the son did not come to help the angels. He came to help the descendants of Abraham. Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us every respect, every part of his being like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God. Then he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people. Since he himself has gone through suffering and testing, 
He is able to help us when we are being tested. You may have heard this before, but it's an important point. Do you struggle in anything? Do you feel tempted? Do you feel tested? Being fully human, Jesus has been there. For example, do you feel shame? Many of us have felt shame over one thing or another at, a, at one point in our life. Jesus was stripped naked and beaten, nailed to the cross. You can bet that he started to feel shame. There was shame put on him. And yet, we hear that he despised shame. He despised shame. Hebrews 12, 2. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. He has been where we are. Jesus felt what we felt and died so that you and I could live as he did. Free. Shame. Compared with the joy in front of me, shame, I despise you. One example, at wherever we are, whatever you are struggling with, Jesus gives us a real way to overcome it. He was fully human. He walked in our shoes. He's been where we are. The boy Jesus learned at the temple. He grew in wisdom and stature. The fact that he was fully human is good news for us. So a question for you. One of the questions that arose in my heart is if Jesus, the Son of God, being fully God and fully man, had to felt the need to spend lots of time in the temple learning in God's house, learning how much more should I spend time in the Father's house learning about Him. What else do we observe in this passage? Jesus was misunderstood. Jesus is the Son of God would live his entire life being misunderstood. Now, don't get me wrong. Misunderstanding is not atypical in our relationships. Katie and I have been married for over 10 years, and we have four young children. We regularly misunderstand one another. I'm in IT, in healthcare, and I tend to use fairly mechanical language. I'm the IT guy that you don't like talking to. So you can imagine that in a marriage. Um, Katie was trained in early childhood at environmental education and is now a homemaker with the kids. Some days we are in two completely different universes in terms of communication. I also miscommunicate with my sons. Uh, James is three, and he is the you know, third brother in four, and he wants to be understood. He wants to be heard, but he doesn't have all his vocabulary. And so he does this thing where he, he says, you know, if he says, Dad, I want a cookie, but he doesn't remember the word cookie. So he says, Dad, I want, I want, I want, I want, I want, over and over and over again until he um, finally remembers it because he wants to be understood. And I usually don't understand it, which makes him frustrated and angry, and it, it's wonderful. But, but this is not, when we hear about Jesus' parents misunderstanding him, this is not just your, your typical family misunderstanding. He was misunderstood at a very deep level. The purpose of who he was was misunderstood. From the beginning, he was expected by all of the teachers and priests uh, who said he would come as a conqueror to save the Jewish people from rule by Rome, yet he was born in a manger. His parents didn't fully understand him. They didn't realize he would be in a temple, and he says, why wouldn't I be in my father's house? And they didn't understood what he meant when he said, I must be in my father's house. Luke, this is the first of seven times in Luke when Jesus says, I must. It, it speaks to his purpose. It speaks to what he is driven to do. And this is the first time we hear it. The first time we hear Jesus speak, he says, I must be in my father's house, indicating his purpose. 
His family didn't understand it. His purpose was clear to, clear to him and, and to us reading back, but it was misunderstood by his family. When he started his ministry, Mark 3.21 tells us that his family said, Jesus is out of his mind. They say the start, crowd started coming to him. He was so busy because people wanted to meet with him, and his family thought he was out of his mind. We don't have indication which family, but they really didn't get it at first. You know, I think Jesus, was, he got, he, by the time he started his ministry, he began to be okay with it. In fact, he realized that the wisdom of God wouldn't be understood. He spoke to people in parables, knowing that many would not understand. Matthew 13, his disciples came to him and asked, why do you use parables to talk to the people? He said, you are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. To those that listen to my teaching, more understanding will be given, and they will have an abundance of knowledge. But for those who are not listening, even what little understanding they have will be taken away from them. That is why I use these parables. For they look, but they don't really see. They hear, but they don't really listen or understand. The theme of, do you know me? Do you listen to me? Or else you will not understand me is the theme of his life and ministry. And I love it that we see it this early here with his parents. So one of the questions that arises in my heart when I see Jesus misunderstood by his parents and I look at his entire ministry is, if Jesus was misunderstood by his family and many of his own people in ministry, what's the chance that I misunderstand Jesus? Do we misunderstand what he's trying to do in us, in our city? Do we listen to him well so that we know what he really is trying to do? Or do we misunderstand? A third thing I see here. Jesus throughout his life and ministry was frequently at his father's house. It was expected. It was part of who he was. This is the first time we see him beyond a little baby Jesus. And he is in the temple. We see pictures of Jesus teaching in the temple throughout the gospels. He was in the temple when he announced that he was the fulfillment of scripture and the Messiah. He healed in the temple on the Sabbath. He commented on the generosity of the poor widow who gave everything she had. In fact, most of the stories, the parables that you've heard about Jesus or many stories you've heard about his healing happened while he was in the temple. He was in his father's house. By the end of his ministry, it was a daily routine for him. Luke 21, every day, every day, Jesus went to the temple to teach, and every evening he returned to spend the night on the, at the Mount of Olives. The crowds gathered at the temple every morning to hear him. He was very aware of his purpose, and from a young age, that purpose caused him to be frequently in his father's house. His father's house was not only critical to his purpose here, but it connected him to the father. The entire temple was built and designed to ritualistically, that's a word, remind the Jewish people what God had done for them, how he'd brought them out of slavery, how he had provided a sacrifice and would provide the Messiah to save them. Every piece of the temple, every lampstand, every um, room and the way it was designed was designed to point to God. All eyes pointing to the Father, similar to what our Sunday morning church gatherings are designed to do. Now, let me be clear. Today, the house of God is not a temple anymore. The house of God is not this building. With Jesus, we are told later, in, in, um, we are to told later by Paul that his temple is his people. And I want you to hear me here. In John 2, Jesus calls himself the new temple. And in Paul, uh, in 1 Corinthians, he speaks to those that are in Christ. 1 Corinthians 3, 16 through 17. Don't you realize that all of you together are the temple of God and that the Spirit of God lives in you? 
God will destroy anyone who destroys this temple. For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. When we come together in Christ, we are the new temple constructed specifically by God to point to him. Jason asked us a few weeks ago, you know, is it possible to love God but not love the church? The church, the body of Christ, here together in 1 Corinthians, all together are the temple of God, are the Father's house. We see that Jesus loved the Father's house. Do we love the Father's house? Do we love the temple of God? Do we love meeting him where he is? The body of believers is the new temple. Do you crave to be in the Father's house? Do I crave to be in the Father's house? in his presence with his people for a purpose. Doing so keeps us focused on the Father. It keeps us connected to his purpose and it points others to God just as the temple did before. So in this passage, we see Jesus learning, showing us that he is fully man in addition to fully God. We see that he was misunderstood at a very deep level. And we observe that he was in his father's house often. All of these things roll together in something that I would say The key point where we come and see Jesus in his Father's house is that Jesus loves the Father. Maybe you knew that, right? Jesus is his son. He should love the Father. But he loves him deeply. There is an intimacy between Jesus and the Father. In John 10.30, Jesus says of of the Father, I and the Father are one. One of the shortest verses in John, not the shortest, one of the shortest verses, John 10.30, I and the Father are one. And we all know that the Father loved his son, Jesus, John 5. So Jesus explained, I tell you the truth, the son can do nothing by himself. He does only what he sees the father doing. Whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him everything he is doing. We actually see this love from Jesus acted out. In fact, if I said Jesus in the temple, what are one of the few things that you think of if you know you've been around the church for a while. Each of the four gospels speaks of a time when Jesus enters his father's house and drives out the money changers and vendors, uh, those are that, are that are taking advantage of worshipers uh, on their way to God, really take, that are in the way of worship to God. I really like Mark's account because he makes the point of saying that Jesus, after he enter, enters Jerusalem in what we call the triumphal entry, he ends that entry where they lay down palm branches and everybody's yelling, Hosanna, Hosanna, by going to the temple and observing. A commentator I read said that he is looking at the temple not as a pilgrim, as he and his parents came to when he was a child, but as a sovereign Lord who will suddenly come to his temple. He is looking around this center of Jewish religious life to see if it is fulfilling its purpose and leading people to true worship of God. It is not because the next day when he returns to the temple, he restores it temporarily to its original purpose, a house of prayer and a place to meet God the Father. When, uh, Mark 15, uh, eleven fifteen, when they arrived back in Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out the people buying and selling animals for sacrifices. He knocked over the tables of money changers and the chairs of those selling doves, and he stopped everyone from using the temple as a marketplace. He said to him, the scriptures declare, my temple will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have turned it into a den of thieves. 
In John's account, we hear what the disciples thought at that time. After this account in John, his disciples remembered that it is written in Psalms, zeal for your house will consume me. His passion, his love for the house of God, for the house of his father, drove him to drive out the money changers, called money changers, to drove him to drive out all the vendors that were preventing people from worshiping God. We actually see this similar thing. This is why Jesus is so interested in, in whether a church is pursuing the Father. Because if the purpose of, the, of those that are gathered, as Paul says in Corinthians, is to direct people to the Father, and we're not doing that, we can see Jesus' zeal in what happened where the temple wasn't there. And we actually see in Revelations, there are churches that are sent very strong letters from the Apostle John uh, talking about what punishment God has in store if those churches do not turn back to him. Because we, as a people, as a body, not as a, as a building, are pointing people to God. Let's look at one more way Jesus loved the Father, and this gets to how we point people to God. John 15, 9 through 11. I have loved you even as my Father has loved me. Remain in my love. When you obey my commandments, you remain in my love, just as I, Jesus, obey my Father's commandments and remain in his love. I have told you these things so that you will be filled with joy. Yes, your joy will overflow. Jesus is not saying focus on the commandments. His focus is on saying if you are keeping the commandments, you remain in the love of God. You remain in love. I think the way when we actually look at the translation, there's an intimacy here. You remain in love with God and in love with Jesus the same way he is in love with the Father. There's an intimacy there, and Jesus walked it out, not just by being at the temple a lot, but by also keeping God's commandments. You know, I, I, went, um, I went to college um, up at App in Boone. I also grew up there. I grew up about 10 minutes from there. Uh, freshman year, I remember my friends giving me a hard time because I went home less than they did, even though it was so close. One semester, I was having a tough time getting through exams and uh, thought I'd be able to study. I'd go off campus t- 15 miles down the road to my parents' house, and I'd study there. After dinner one evening, I sat down to study. It was like a stats exam or something that I was not good at. I needed to really focus. And uh, next thing I knew, it was 6 a.m. in the morning. See, as I've moved off to college, my mother and father's house had become a place of rest for me. When I went there to study as a college student who burned the candle at both ends, I couldn't help because it had become a place of rest. When we see Jesus in his father's house, we cannot help but seeing that he cared for the father for his father's words, and for his father's purpose. We see what, what he was, what Jesus was, what the father was. Band, you can come on up. So maybe you're here today and you don't know Jesus. He was fully human and fully God, and he died on the cross to deliver us from death, to give us true life, and to end our separation from God. All we are asked to do is trust him to bear that for us, Trusting him is something that you can do now if you don't know Jesus. You've heard about his purpose, even from his young age. But if that's something you want to know more about, I'll invite you down here to talk with me afterwards. I'll be standing down here on the right. But maybe you do know Jesus. And I'd ask you to examine the picture of Jesus in his father's house. It's more than just a neat story of Jesus as a kid. 
Ask yourself these questions. Do I seek to learn of the Father like Jesus learned? Do I understand that Jesus being fully human gives me hope? Do I ever misunderstand Jesus? And if I do, am I listening to him? Do I want to be frequently in the Father's house with the Father's people? And how do I love the Father? This was perhaps one of the hardest things for me to come to because when I, I started looking at Jesus in his Father's house, um, I, uh, I started seeing the intimacy that he has with the Father. And if you look throughout John, he talks about him and the Father being one. Everything that Jesus does, the Father does. Everything the Father wants, Jesus does. There's an intimacy. There's a love. And I want that intimacy and that love. Many times I perceive God as sovereign God, and he is. But what we see in Jesus is that he loves us deeply, and he invites us to come to us through his, through his house, through his people. I referenced Paul's comment in Corinthians where he says that all of you together are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God lives in you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that just like the temple that was prescribed in the Old Testament, all of us together are the temple of God, and the Spirit of God lives here, made for the same purpose as the early temple? For God's temple is holy, and you are that temple. Just as the temple, the Father's house, allowed people to connect to God many years ago, so today, all of you together, the church, serve to connect God to the dead and dying world. Jesus is our high priest. We are the temple, not through this building, but through his believers, the body of Christ. And one of the ways that we remember this, one of the very physical ways we remember this is through communion, remembering that act where he sacrificed himself for us so that we could live. And so in just a moment, there will be people standing around the four corners of the room with a plate and, uh, of bread and juice. The bread represents his body and the juice represents his blood. If you've not placed your faith in Jesus, if you don't trust him, then we invite you to observe. But if you have, this is a physical action where we remember and reaffirm our trust in his death on the cross to save us, giving us life both now and forever. So... We invite you to take the bread, dip it in the juice, and remember, because of Jesus, we are reconciled with God. We are called into that same intimacy that he was, loved by him for all eternity. In the physical temple of Jerusalem, there was a system of hand washing and ceremony to make a person clean. Christ has already done that for us, once and for all. But don't approach communion, this time of worship, lightly. Scripture tells us, if you have something against a brother, go and be reconciled to them and confess our sins before approaching this table. When we do this in our Father's house together, we are approaching the Father and we are pointing to Him, the God of the universe who loves us deeply. Let's do that. Let's pray. Father God, You are good. And... Um, you love us, and you sent Jesus here to be our sacrifice. And when I first looked at this, packet, this passage, Father, I confess, I just saw Jesus as a boy. But ultimately, he is your son. 
he was sent for us. And, uh, and Father, he loved you deeply. It was, very, it was a very obvious thing for him to say, why wouldn't I be in my Father's house? Father, mend that into our hearts. May we see Jesus and how he loved you. May we seek to love you the same. Please strip away all of the distractions, all of the other come and see things in our lives. May we come and see Jesus, who he was in his Father's house. And may we see you. Thank you for dying on the cross for our sins. May you be glorified in everything we say and do here today. In Jesus' name, amen.